There are several types of leaders, change leaders, that I'm seeing in our field today, ranging from incrementalists to innovators to outright disruptors. Today on Leading the Way, I'm talking with one of those disruptors, positive disruptors, Alicia Lawyer. Alicia is the founder of Houston-based classical music ensemble and organization, ROCO, self-described as shaping the future of classical music through energizing, modernizing, and personalizing the concert experience. Alicia and I talk about those operational and strategic differences between ROCO and the traditional classical music experience and organizational orientation we see today. This includes a culture tied to something she calls wildcatting in the arts. You're going to love this conversation. I'm so grateful you've chosen to join me today. Alicia Lawyer, founder of the Disrupting uh, Disruptor. I'm going to come back to that classical music organization based in Houston, Rocco. Thank you for joining me, for leading the way you and I are going to talk about leadership and leaders and what that means. But in the very um, moment, thank you and greetings to you on this October day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be here. I, I um, was, as I was thinking about our conversation, um, surprised to realize that I have not asked you, I don't think, what R-O-C-O, ROCO stands for? Uh, and I would like to know. It doesn't. <laughs> it is a, it's an acronym, but not anymore. We started one way and now we are ROCO Chamber Orchestra. So it's kind of like Nike or IBM. We have a new moniker. I like it. I like it. Okay. So that's a little bit about that. I would love my listeners on leading the way to just learn a little bit about you, your background as a musician and how, what your path, how did you get to this place called founding Rogue? <laughs> I'll do the briefest version and we can dig into anything you want. But um, so I was at SMU for my undergrad to do oboe and physics. And then I sort of accidentally auditioned at Juilliard, which is a whole nother story and wound up, wound up there for my master. My husband and I, we got married and moved there. And then we moved to Houston and had some cool gigs and things, but nothing like I was thinking. And you start to realize that across the nation, there are only two openings a year period for your instrument. And that there really is not a future in that in ways that you would had thought or were led to believe to be perfectly blunt. Yeah. And so we actually went, we actually wound up moving to France. But what I actually learned while we were there is what music is in Europe. And it is truly the fabric of people's lives. It is the way they move in the world. And you go to dinner, you all have wine. People, if they brought an instrument, play it with amateurs, professionals. It's just a piece of people's fabric. So when we wound up back in Houston, which was a big shock for both of us, we thought we'd be in Europe for a long time. Um, it was a job my husband got offered. I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought about starting, I don't know, my own group, but I didn't know what it was. And this orchestra was forming. And I was a part of it from the beginning, great ideas. And then in succession, three groups were formed and had fatal flaws, but really good ideas for all three groups. But they all were formed based on, you know, what piece you're gonna play and this one venue and that kind of thing. I was never integrated and that's a whole nother path we could talk about. I was never an oboist and Alicia. I was always Alicia doing all this. And then I played the oboe. 
And mm -hmm. I could never find that integration. I was ready to quit the oboe in 2004. And my church I'd been involved in, and, and please note, this is important. I'd been deeply involved in Houston since, you know, we moved here in the early 90s, went away, came back in the late 90s, and until 2004, deeply involved in Houston. So when the church renovated, it was truly start an orchestra from above. It was like, hello, start an orchestra, because I saw their rendition, and I said, uh-oh, there, there could be a really great sound in this space. It's being built just for the organ. It seats 500 people. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking, why don't we think human first? Why don't I think about who I want to play with instead of what to play? And that's why half the orchestra is not from Houston. They come in from all over and handpicked to smile on stage and get over themselves, but at the highest level of performance. And it's just a real joy to connect emotionally and spiritually and physically with these people um, that, that have been crafted over all these years. So anyway, that started in 2005, first concert, November 5th, 2005. And, you know, we've grown from a hundred thousand budget to 2.2 million, 95% donated dollars. And it's just kind of backward, but built human first in many, many, many aspects. So we're going to, I want to unpack these aspects because yeah. <laughs> the way that you, I, I would say to my listeners, your website is a treasure trove of yeah. examples and content about this new, this, you know, this disruptive way that I'm um, characterizing what you're doing there. So that's at roco, roco.org for my listeners. But you describe these things. You say, um, or the website says, it, Roco is known as the most fun you can have with serious music, that the organization is shaping the future of classical music through energizing, modernizing, and personalizing the concert experience. And I characterize this as disruptive and a disruptor. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Are you comfortable with that? Absolutely. There's no reason to always have to do it how you do it, but there's also, you don't wanna be known just for a change maker, just for change sake, that's pointless uh -huh. too. Um, or getting bigger just to get bigger. It has to be strategic. It has to be logical initiatives that align with your mission. I mean, look, there are three things Roku doesn't do. One, we don't play background music as a brand. Nobody mm -hmm. puts baby in the corner. <laughs> you don't put baby in the corner. Mm -hmm. Two, we don't chase we don't chase funding with programming. We don't do something just because you'll give us ten thousand dollars. You know, uh -huh. it's got to align with what we already do. And the third biggest one is there are no jerks allowed in the organization. It's the biggest one. And I think that that culture and what Amy Gibbs, our managing director did when she first came is really made it her mission to codify the culture that had been created of creativity, collaboration, and, and support in all the different ways that we do it. Mm -hmm. um, th there's another um, term that you used that made me giggle. Um, you call, call it, and you cite it on your website too, wildcatting in the arts. It made me think of things that <laughs> people in their 20s doing bars, but in fact, it has its roots in a whole other, much more practical test and learn reality. Yes. Can you describe yes, it? Yes. Yes. So wildcatting in the arts is a term only old Texans understand. Wildcatting is a term given to men at the time, and I'm sure there were women that no one ever talked about, who would go into the fields and dig, dig holes to try to find oil. And so it's called wildcatting when you stick a hole in the ground and hope for the best. And, and so it's taking risks for great yep. reward. 
And so that's what wildcatting is, taking risks for great reward. And I just call it that. And I always have to explain it because like you said, people up north think, is that an animal in Texas? What is that? <laughs> so, yeah. So. Well, I like um, uh, my listeners know and um, folks who know TRG know we, we um, adhere a lot to test and learn. The only way that we can, ex, you know, explore and grow and change and um, in in productive ways is to test and try and take some risk and learn from it. Let's come back to these words that you just were defining. These were these are new since our conversation. Actually, they just came out of this um, maybe this retreat or they've been um, um, you've been developing them. They sound cultural. Say them again to me. What are they again? Well, it, it's part of our strategic plan, actually, that we, okay. we, I mean, we've always, we've always operated deeply with our strategic plan. I mean, very much leaned into that. And I love strategic planning. So I know that's helped. But this latest strategic plan, we're in the second year of it, um, really came up with the idea that our culture in ROCO is um, full of collaborative, supportive, and cohesive actions and and relationships. And I, it bugs me that they're not all C words or S words. <laughs> <laughs> really bugs me. But it basically for me overarchingly comes back to just stay curious. I invite our audience to stay curious. I invite our musicians to stay curious. And that's really my biggest beating the drum. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's use that. There's culture and curiosity. And just, you gave us a little bit of a sneak peek of some of the elements that are different in Rocco. 500 seat venue, that's a lot of seats in a church. And um, there, I, I want you to, if you can help, there are many things that we could talk about that are different in the way ROCO engages its community, its stakeholders on, on stage, the musicians, um, the audience. Let's start though with the audience. So if I'm, a, if I, if I come to what is your, what I'll just for the moment call main stage or, or, or classical presentations, tell, tell our, our listeners about what is different in what the the audience or customer might experience in a Rocco concert. You bet. And so the three orchestras I was a part of before kept trying to change the product instead of changing the experience around the product. Or they kept trying to downplay it or, you know, put it secondary to the point. And when I started this, I wanted it to be the main thing. And I also didn't want the conductor to be the main thing. So starting it with just a, a different conductor every concert, but the core are the 40. It's like a, a basketball team. You know, those people are the ones and the personalities you know. Mm. And that's the point. Um, actually, most of my musicians are either soloists or chamber musicians or professors. And that's what's really fun and the dynamic that you see on stage. So the point is that I didn't think about my audience when I started. And I still, and this sounds, this is going to sound so antithetical. And if it's coming out of context, it'll sound like I'm not, I shouldn't run for office, but I don't think about our audience. I think about people, all mm. people. Mm. And mm. I don't think about our audience. In fact, I crafted this thinking about musicians and myself and what we and our passions want to offer audiences in dialogue, not just for them to witness and, and we tell them it's good, but, but in relationship and invitation and dialogue. Those were the big words. So when I first started thinking about how to make this fit, I knew there'd at least have to be a few people that were in the opera orchestra that played with us. And there were just maybe five or six total. There's seven now. And I was like, but there's so there's not a lot going on in Houston, even though there's a lot of chamber music and there is a ton. I mean, actually, there's a, a billion things going on in Houston and music. 
But as far as the big orchestras, I mean, it's Houston Symphony. Yeah. It's the Houston Grand Opera and Ballet mm -hmm. and Rocco now. You know? uh -huh. And there's a, historical practice groups and that that's it. Weird. And everything else that's that's an orchestra is amateur. And it's great. They're community orchestras and they're really important and absolutely important and, and vital. So it's just, just an interesting landscape here in Houston for being the fourth or third largest city in the US. So when I first started it, I said, how do we slot in something really impactful to people's lives? And I had had, you know, I had two kids at the time, it was 2004. So I had two and four year old, two and six year old, you know, and um, so I was like, what do we do? So I came up with five o'clock concerts on Saturday and you're done by seven. So you get on with your evening. Uh -huh. You know, it's over by seven, just like movies. How long are the movie? Can I make reservations? Yes, you can, you know? Um, so five to seven, get off the stage at seven. And then I thought, well, what, what about kids? I don't want to do children's concerts. Most of the, 90% of them are terrible. And, you know, the, the, the adults feel like they have to drink before they go. And then, then they, and then I, vice versa, the kids don't want to go to the adult stuff. And frankly, orchestras play way too much music on concerts. And anyway, so I thought, why don't have a child care music education program that goes in tandem with the concerts? Because it's at my church. I know all the people who've raised my children and they have the bonding. They have all the, the insurance. Why don't we tag this on? So it turned into this thing where the kids were, were broken up into age groups. And it sounds complicated, but it's not. You know, two months to four years old is child care and a little bit of a lesson with the little, little bitties. But five to 10 years old, they break in, in ages, they get a really cool lesson about lots of things. And they come into one tier one piece live that I've picked and it's either five to 15 minutes long. They go in the balcony. We welcome them from the stage. We out at them and wave, everybody claps. And they are there just for that piece, but their parents are not sitting with them. So you have a, a, a shared but different experience. So when they pick them up and like, oh, did you like that piece? Let's talk about mm -hmm. it. But they're not, they're not having to shush the kids. They're not having to do this. And then they go back and have reconnaissance with the teacher and have pizza and movies till 1030. So parents get a three and a half hour date night. So I always say we're, we're saving marriages one concert at a time. It's my line. <laughs> like I said, I could run, <laughs> I could run for office. I just have all these like, you know, let's do this. But it was a really, it was a very small add on to the overarching idea of holistic, multi-generational audiences and how the needs of of each, not in repertoire, not saying what we play, but the experience, right? And so then there are so many layers that we've added. No, so we do 20 concerts-ish a year, 17 to 20. Right. Five of them are 40-piece orchestra, half the musicians fly into play. The rest are chamber music that we started maybe the third year. So you could get to know the individual players in a deeper way. I realized in this 19th season, somebody counted for me. We have performed in 67 venues in Houston. So give us some examples of the yep. places and why. Exactly. So the Holocaust Museum is where I used to, I, I worked, but they didn't have a theater. So when they reopened with a really great theater, of course, right? So the first right. year was Degenerate Composers. The second year, Bruce Adolph wrote me a piece. And so we only done two there. We're not going to do it every year. It has mm -hmm. to make sense. And I don't want to force it. Mm -hmm. This This year, just last Friday, we did a concert at Asia Society, but it was not there for because of Asia, it was because Richard Daniel Poor is our composer in residence this year. And he decided, I always ask composers, what do you want to write? What are you, what's on your heart? And he wanted to complete the Dante's Divine Comedy that he'd written the second movement for. So I said, hands down, we're doing it. He said, what's really on my heart is my mom is Iranian. We're Jewish. She's a sculptor. She lives in Florida. 
she has a piece called Breaking the Veil, and I would love to write about the Iranian women's uprising. Mm. And I said, we well, you know half of Roko is all women. I said, why don't you write a piece for the women of Roko? I said, Kristen, me and Brooke could be your soloist and the rest could be there. And it just organically became this. Um, and he's like, I don't have time. I just can't. And he called me the next day and goes, I have to do this. <laughs> and what's really cool, and I will try to send you links and also pictures. What's really, really great is we also added a piece called the 19th Amendment by Clay Mason that he rescored for Rocco's size. So what I love doing now with composers is having them upscore and downscore their works like Mozart used to. It's so easy for the prolific composers. He had written it for trio and I said, hey, Quinn, can you score it for 13 women? He's like, of course I can. And so he upscored it and we performed it for the same group. And at the end of the work, I have my one minute of fame for choreography. I added three dancers and it was this really dynamic thing. So my point is that had to go at Asia Society. So we called the Iranian Cultural Foundation and we had a whole talk back panel at the end of the concert with them and the women that are there. So it's just this whole kind of um, almost expounding upon itself, a layering of things that are really impactful and not just a venue and not just a concert. Right, right, right. Okay, so if I go back to the beginning, there's um, a yeah. number of um, concerts that are part of your in-concert series in the um, venue that you use, the church venue that you use regularly that we can see on your website it looks beautiful. And these are 40 players. Um, and they travel in, you've described them. And that experience with and for parents, yes. which is unusual, also includes some other unusual pieces that I'm that I that you've yes. told me about. And I just want to just say out yeah, loud, house lights up and program books that um, describe the layout of the orchestra and not a traditional programmatic model in terms of, you know, overture, concerto, symphony. So we have these elements that make it feel, again, more like um, like we have a take five and not an intermission. You literally stand up. But what happens is musicians put name tags on and walk into the audience. Uh huh. So that freaks people that freaks people out sometimes. Um, <laughs> we also have I mean, pre-COVID, we would have people sit in the orchestra for one piece, not to pay for it, but just like a, a drawing to get people in the orchestra. Yeah. Um, we like you said, we put pronunciation guides for composers names so people don't feel stupid because most people say Mo Mozart. Right. And they shouldn't have to know it's it's right. Mozart. It's your job, right? right? right. Um, we put time timings of pieces because I have to say, if I hear a new piece, I want to know how, much, how long it is to know the arc of the piece. The other pieces, I mean, sometimes we put the program in order. Sometimes we don't. Um, it just depends on kind of the flow of the evening. So you're kind of a little bit like what's happening. Let me know. But the conductor is the MC that they have to kind of be welcoming and talking to the audience. Um, we always have at least one premiere. Most now we have two premieres on the, the program. Um, we actually have a pay what you wish model. And we I started that years ago, I mean, from the beginning that ticket sales were bonus money. And I just kind of beat that into the board that ticket sales, you can count them, but that's not the revenue we're talking about. You know, if, if somebody likes it, I'd rather give them a ticket and then take them to coffee and ask them for $5,000. That's how this works. So that's another, our listeners um, will be really interested in this 95% contributed model has been that since yep. the beginning. The orientation is open, is an is an experience that, that I think meets the um, the audience. I don't know in real life. I come from the orchestra business. It's my it's my um, most favorite artistic place, and I grew up, you know, with the traditional models and the traditional set of assumptions. 
that these experiences that you're describing, whose job is it to ensure that you understand and feel comfortable ours? Um, how can we break the fifth wall and help um, audience members meet and know the people on the stage? How can you're creating this through your, um, uh, what you call, I think, unchambered series. We'll come back to that in a minute, but how can you create um, a, a knowing between audiences and artists who are the consistent, always group of artists on the stage. Okay, so that's the concert series. The connection series, these are site-specific. You gave us some examples, lots of them. And it's really, really interesting. I mean, part of the experience would make it operationally more challenging, challenging for you and maybe musicians in your your team. It's also intellectually and experientially really interesting to um, to see the see those places enlivened with music. I can just imagine. Do you get positive feedback? You must about these different um, experiences. Oh yeah, I mean, of course, it's a huge challenge, right? Because you're coming in with your own team, just with everything. I mean, we're nomadic. That's what we say. We're nomadic. We take uh -huh. you on a tour of your city. We take you on a tour of your city through music. That's the other uh -huh. thing we say. Uh -huh. um, but ab absolutely, and actually, we have a huge reputation for it now because there's a the new the newly renovated historic El Dorado Ballroom that is in the the um, predominantly historically black uh, third ward here. Um, they renovated and just reopened like a month ago. And when it came out in the papers, it was opening. Somebody texted me and said, oh, are you thinking about doing a concert there? I said, yes, November 4th next week. <laughs> um, so, but what was really fun is it wasn't just some random concert because, and, and one of the things I need to preface this with is to say, I'm all about normalizing diversity. It's something I talk about all the time and it's a big part of Roku's culture as well. Normalizing all diversity, not just race, not just black and white, but women, men, but also, you know, all things. And also age, because I think we have a weird ageism issue in our um, our culture and the orchestra. They tend, we tend to value and push toward the young people as opposed to valuing the people that have been there your whole, their whole lives. It makes mm -hmm. no sense to me, but yeah. okay, back up, back up. So normalizing diversity. When Rob Deemer started to count all the orchestra pieces people played in 2019, he discovered that Rocco was the top orchestra performing women composers in 2019 and the second one performing composers that uh, composers of color. And I didn't know that was something you could get. You know, it was not like I made that as a goal, right? Uh -huh. It's like when you're in a relationship with diverse voices, diverse art comes out of it. This actually, I was going to bring up this um, this recognition that you've received and you've you've described it beautifully. Something else you described that um, is, I think, different is the way that you think about the impact that musicians can have. You said, when I was in the first couple of ensembles, I was Alicia, the player, the musician, and then I had Alicia's life over here. And you're seeking within Roco to integrate those two, I understand. Can you say more about that? When I started the orchestra, and it just happened to be in my church, and I'm very open about my faith, that the only way that I could have this created and be healed from a lot of past wounds, which sounds very loosey-goosey, is to sit in the middle of the church area and look up and see the stained glass, you know, for me, Jesus, God. And it made me just kind of open myself not to convert my, my orchestra or anyone, but to show, which is all we actually are asked to do is show the love, right? And to just ask people to be vulnerable 
yeah, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> and just ask them to come into that space that we're never invited into. And so I tried to do this kind of almost, I find it sometimes silly, but everybody makes me do it because they wanna hear it. The first rehearsal of every set. So like next Thursday, I stand up and say, guys, this is your this is your safe place. And I don't mean safe as in you need Play-Doh because you're traumatized. I mean safe as in, please open yourself up to receiving things around you that you normally have to shut yourself off from and try to find ways to get to the chills you had in high school when you first heard Scheherazade or something. And this is a place that I want you to take the risk to get to that great reward. And, and so I try to do that little speech and sometimes I'm not in the mood and I'll have a musician do it for me now. And it's really great to find that culture that you develop into people. Um, and and then when you ask them to do things like, let's wear color, everybody wears color. We don't wear black now. And I, I mean, we've leaned so hard into it that when I look even four years ago to our concerts, I'm like, we look depressing. It's all black, what's going on? You know, and so just this whole idea of vibrancy and individualism that, that you come together as a whole. And like I spoke, I told you at the um, Center for Anticipatory Intelligence at Utah State about innovation and leadership and bringing individuals, powerful individuals forward together in innovation. That's what really this is about. When I talk to the students or anybody musically, I say, when you're practicing, you are not practicing to get it right. That is the most basic thing. That what you're trying to do is get rid of the physical limitations of what you've chosen your voice to be in order to say from here to there what you wanna say. So mm -hmm. all you're doing is, is basically scraping away what's not the sculpture like Michelangelo says. He doesn't say he carves something. He says he takes away what isn't. And that's what I think about a lot. I um, I wonder how, I love this. Um, this has to do with culture. There's a culture at Roco that ranges from this to no jerks, but mm -hmm. I, or I don't know if I'm making it up. Um, you'll, you'll tell me, but I feel like the environment you've created that says, okay, as musicians, I, we want this space to be a space where you're your most authentic self, your most inspired self, um, it also translates to the ways the projects that they can bring into Roco artistically too. In, can you give us examples of that? Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That is one of the biggest things I need to talk about. I have, I mean, I, I really am trying to not necessarily write a book, but get all of this compartmentalized, but it, I keep, I mean, talking to people like you and especially you with, with how amazing your brain is with all different ways, it inspires me to continue to talk this way. But one of the biggest things I talk about is agency that we give musicians, agency we give our audience, agency we give everyone. I consider composers to be the yenta between audience and stage. They're the matchmaker between audience and stage. And they're the people that we're co-creating with. But I say that to say, giving agency to the musicians to understand that they are actually co-creating. And this is really small, but I, I, I think your listeners in particular will understand this. There's a weird fight I have to have with publishers that is about, I require our composers to put in the parts, not just the score, the program notes for the piece, as well as the block of donors who donate to Roco Resound, which is our commissioning consortium. And so it's not just in the score, it adds a whole page to the parts, but they have to do it because my musicians want to know what the piece is about. I would guarantee you 90% of, of pr premieres the musician has their page, they, they have their notes and maybe some you know dynamics, but they don't know. It could, it could be a whole thing about sex trafficking or it could be about let's go you know float through the forest. you know. And so my point is it has to be the agency of co-creation with the composer, the conductor and all, it's, it's a holistic view of what a musician is as opposed to a cog in the wheel. Mm -hmm. And also the composer, right? The composer needs to be able to transmit the ideas to the people doing it, not just through the conductor that's, that 
was weirdly formed back in Mendelssohn's day to replace the actual communication with the, the musicians, right? So that's kind of what I'm trying to get back to. And publishers just look at it as an extra page they have to print, right? And I'm saying, well, we're on iPads, we don't need print. And they're like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, well, good luck. You know, <laughs> just like we all have iPads. I scan everything. So it's just, it's really interesting to me that kind of strange small agency. But then yes, we have three series in concert, which yes, we play at St. John's, but only three times. The yeah. other one we do at Brockman's, the new opera hall at Rice University, which is stunning. We also play at Miller Outdoor Theater, which is so along the lines of our number one value, which is access. That is our number one value. We don't do outreach. We don't reach into communities we weren't invited into in the first place. Um, but we play that. We do a whole series, like you said, connection series. So many, so many concepts there. We played in a cistern where I made my brass players wear waiters to get on a platform. We've played every possible thing you could think of. I could go down a thousand rabbit holes there. And then we do Unchambered. And it used to be called Unchambered because we didn't have a home. But basically, a musician two or three a year get invited to create their own tour concert. And, you know, one of them, I mean, I can send you examples of all these pictures to have for you guys. One of them was Kristen Wolf Jensen, who's a professor at UT, wanted to bring her entire 17 bassoon studio to play. Yeah. And you have never, you have not lived until you have heard superstition, <laughs> superstition wow. played. It's wow. the best. It's the best. Wow. It's the best. And we played it in a funky place. And I need, I, I mean, I don't know if you've got the other picture I sent you, but I did. But we played it in this place where we could project on five different walls and we put the audience in the round, around the bassoons and just, you know, finding really unique spaces, even with unchambered now, like El Dorado Ballroom is Rachel's unchambered. Um, yeah, and so you give agency to someone that may not really know how to program like that, even though they're chamber players, but I really counsel them. I'm like, you've got to have variety. You've got to have, you know, there's just a lot you have to learn about if you want to do an hour and a half show, you cannot have more than 40 minutes of music, period. And people don't believe me. <laughs> I'm like, 40 minutes is enough, you know? And so for our two hours, 70 minutes is max that I'll do. And so there's just that kind of learning. When I commission a composer, I will not let anyone do more than 17 minutes. It's the magic number. Usually it's 15, but 17 is the number or nine. So it's like this kind of odd pricing that keeps them contained, right? So it's just this agency that's given to everyone to be a part of the, and you know what? I didn't even realize, even in our team, we have eight women team. I call us Oceans 8. We can plan a bank heist. <laughs> Love it. It's awesome. But we, even on our, our retreat, when we were talking about it, um, I found out how unusual the culture is that everyone has a voice. Even that part-time person who's there, we throw it out there. If you have a comment on whatever we're doing, you're welcome to submit it, right? Or talk or say. And I did not know that was not normal culture. So, Culture, this that you've just raised is another place I wanted to go. Um, you know, there's a culture that you've described here as it relates to the audience experience. There's a culture um, with the way that um, your musicians are heard, respected, honored, invited to participate and, and um, help create artistic experiences. And then you've just said, Ocean's Eight, the group of, I think you said all women, um, and I'm not sure that matters to you, except that it just happens to be all women, Ocean's Eight. I, I think it's important, that, not important, not, not that we're saying we're exclusionary. I mean, yeah. we, uh, Jason's our librarian, but there's a certain dynamic that all eight of us are women. They're just it. 
you know, and that's really interesting to me. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So if you, if you, um, stay there and say the culture that we're creating is one that, um, where there's no jerks, where people's voices are genuinely honor, uh, honestly heard and respected. Um, uh, what else, just talk a little bit more about the, the institutional culture you're, you're working to create. So to talk about the culture that has been created, I know part of it is the succession planning for me and being abducted by aliens that they talk about, which is hilarious. But the idea about how to empower people to step into those positions when it happened and, you know, giving people like Madison, who's our production manager, who's 25 years old, the mm. ability to really lead the, the meetings that she's been needing to lead to control this Medusa of a team that we have in the best ways, Medusa. But over the, the retreat, we were asked, what is the Rocco team animal and what is the Rocco animal? Like, what animal would you pick to, yeah. to represent the team and the, yeah. and the orchestra? Well, we just asked the board that on Tuesday and we got the like the best answers in the world. I mean, they're just so good. And, and they're just really thoughtful. And we just had all these amazing things. So my point is, I think the culture is already there. I think it's already been infused in people. And I think just the idea of creating the open space for them to move in, because it doesn't have to look like Alicia's vision of Rocco, right? It doesn't have to. I don't have any ownership of that. And I don't have founder syndrome. Um, definitely not. And, and people always say, especially in our orchestra world, and you know this, good idea, go replicate it. I was like, no, that's not the point. It's not the point and gross. I don't want to do that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Like it would be very different. Like I've done a lot of consulting now, just talking to groups and what do you specifically have to say? What is your voice? Where does it fit? Who can support it and all of that. So the, the unchambered and the agency and just giving people the ability to bring their full integrated selves into the process of the process of creation and the process of support. Because musicians know they are the link to money. They don't have to ask for money, but we pay them to go to the gala. We actually pay them to go to the gala after our opening concert. Their time is being paid for. So they, we put a musician at every table. I don't, I don't know an orchestra this happens in. So you put a musician at every single table and they are asked to just talk to people, figure out their name, and honestly, give us some intel. Like, is, is that person a cellist? Is that person that, I mean, nothing creepy, but just <laughs> the idea oh, of who are they as people. Yes, yeah. You know, and, and so, yeah, they start to see themselves as ambassadors in a very different way than just on the stage. Are there musicians on the board? Or are, are there musicians on the board? Just one. And um, so I'm on the board and then a musician's representative is on the board. Okay. So let's go to the business side here for a minute. Um, and I'll, I do that with the wrap up and acknowledgement that what I hear in the culture is one in which the musicians are seen and known and heard as people and as artists and the staff equally are given an opportunity regardless of experience um, uh, or lived lived or professional experience, opportunity to have an impact and chart a path for Rocco. And I heard the word succession planning and, um, and, and the point about what happens when Alicia is no longer associated with or begins to decrescendo some of that. The business of running a test and learn organization um, we've heard contributed, not earned. We've heard accessibility is the point there. And 
outreach is not the word, access is, not going to or places where we haven't been invited, ensuring maybe putting words in your mouth, access so that we can invite and maybe eventually get invited. I'm sure the connection series, mm -hmm. big role in that. I'm, I'm, so the business has grown from some, you know, small amount of startup money to, to more than $2 million. And the yeah. annual challenge, is there an annual challenge of raising that money? Are you able to meet, you know, do you struggle with the same, oh my gosh, will we balance budgets kind of challenges? Is there a challenge in an all contributed income model, I guess? I mean, the challenge is always that, that pe people are people and money is people. And so relationships change, people pass away or they actually, lose, they don't lose interest maybe, but they focus somewhere differently or, you know, the, the criticalness of something else is urgent. Um, I will say, and I need to back up and, and this is very critical to talk about because of the business model. We have paid from the very beginning of, of the first concert, we have paid for all the rights to record every single concert we've ever played and edit it. So every, in our listening room, we have over a thousand tracks of music free to listen to the world. Okay. So right. we paid musicians, limited pressing. We paid, we're union. Okay. We paid pension work dues. We paid publishers, composers, all for the rights to leave it up for free. Uh -huh. Following that, following that model of content is free. Content is free. Then it went to, in 2013, we started live streaming to the world for free. Right. Right. Way ahead of the Way pandemic. Way before so, the pandemic. Yeah. 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 And it looks terrible too. If you go back and see the first one, it's like two cameras and it's still, but <laughs> now, you know, we actually got over a quarter million views of our concerts over COVID. We did not have to pivot and people slept in their cars and drove down here to play our concerts. We're the only thing going. Right. And so we did that. But my point of being there is we didn't charge for it. We don't charge for our live streams and we even don't ask you to register your email. There is no barrier to our live streams. In fact, we live stream on six different channels. We are out there. And when people see that we're out there and they see the value of this, and especially with the Roku on the go. So I approached one of our big parks here in 2020 and asked if we could plant QR codes along their trail to our music called Roku on the go. We are in 24 different hospitals, parks, and schools with different iterations of our playlist that also is taken on organic things. So one of the best iterations was when Fifth Ward called and asked us for our Black Composer playlist because we played quite a number of them. And they gave that playlist to their muralist. They were going to do fives all over the Fifth Ward. And they picked their favorite piece from us. We put the QR on the mural and they painted the mural with inspiration from that piece. And so that is true integration of our music in the world. I had a, I had a girl Eagle Scout getting her Eagle Scout called us and said, I would like to pick my favorite pieces to put on a customized playlist and put in a park that I'm renovating and let it be called, I forget, Lisa's playlist. Did it in five seconds, right? Free to the world. They don't have to pay for it. And so that's, there's no end to this, right? I'm trying to put something on Elon Musk. If you're listening, let me slap something on the next Jeff Bezos. Next thing you throw in space, please. <laughs> um, but anyway, my point is having, having all that content and going to foundations and saying, we are changing the sector we are not human needs, but we are human needs in art and music, but we're not just in a pristine chapel. We're not here. We are truly in the community and they see that now, all 19 years of it. There's no, I mean, I could talk for literally hours about this. So they do fund us. We just did a major gifts campaign with individuals that was super successful. Now we just launched a major gifts campaign from foundations 
we just got our lead gift. It's, it's insane. Well, that's exactly right. I think, okay, I asked the question, is it hard to have a business model that's based on philanthropic income only? And I think the field um, feels like um, the investments that you made early on as a small organization in recording and ensuring that the listening room was developed out of the recordings of, did you say every concert since the beginning? So you yep. you have had that available for free. You have live streaming that began in 2013. Um, and this um, neighborhood program that is integrated into spaces with QR codes so that as I engage with my community, classical music is something I'm engaging with. I think, I think that many organizations would say, well, only large organizations can do that. And in fact, one of the questions I ask regularly of leaders um, as we're moving out of pandemic times is the digital channels you started to explore because most of them started during the pandemic, will they stay? Well, no, we can't afford it. Only the big, uh, uh, only the big organizations uh, can afford it. And, and so you, you had a different approach that said access. And as a result, the reward, the reward backwards is the funding. Yeah. Yeah. It's really backward. And it's in a, and it's really funny because like Amy too, we're really out there beating that drum about over and over again about don't monetize your content. First of all, basic economic 101, you know, too much supply, not enough demand, you can't charge much for it. And that's what we're doing wrong, right? And I understand climbing that is a very tall mountain about trying to make it accessible and still valuable and still high level. That's all really hard. But I always describe what we do as a two-sided coin, right? That we actually hardcore leaned into fancy, fancy during COVID. So instead of going the other way, let's put jeans on on stage. I, we went, I went like full on ball gowns, like fancy jewelry, everything. That has been so fun because people come in jeans and we're like, please come in jeans, but you're paying to see us be all fancy. And I say it like that, very Texan, you know, fancy. And I think that's what's really fun is people want to see and celebrate after the pandemic. And I think it was a very big mistake that people went the other way on stage after pandemic. Also the idea that, they're trying to monetize content, but Amy and I just like go, what is happening? You invested in, in digitizing and, and getting out there and then you just stopped. You gained an audience that was outside your city and then you're just stopping it, you know? Right. And then the right. other part, the other part of the, the business model, commissioning has always been, it's just, it's, I said we had a resound commissioning consortium. Those are directed dollars, but it's all part of general operating. I mean, commissioning has been general operating from the beginning. We just started yeah. doing it. I mean, we spent yeah. well over a hundred, $100,000 a year in conditioning. Hey, I've got a question about pay as you um, as you can or pay what you can or wish. Um, what, wish. Is, what is the average that, that someone will pay at ROCO? I'm, I'm just curious. Sure, sure. So we have a suggested ticket price of $35 and that's what we've had from the beginning. Okay. And then what is really, really, what's really, really funny is an ABA is going to come out with this, and I hope I quote this correctly the way they're going to say it. But they did a, a massive study, you know, advisory board for the arts yeah. did a massive study on um, the difference in uh, ticket revenue pre pandemic and post pandemic. And, and we are one of the top industries in the nation. In terms of after have the, the increase in 
in ticket sales after the pandemic with the pay what you wish model. Okay, and you said um, it got slightly interrupted. The suggested price is 25, is that what you said? 30, 35. 35, okay. And it, on on average, do you see that your ticket buyers pay something close to that? Uh, on yeah, or, or more, yeah, or more. I mean, I can go look at the numbers. I don't really pay attention to that anymore. All I pay attention to is who's giving me a $10,000 check. That's what I yeah. pay attention Well, it's, I understand why. The lion's share of the income is coming through charitable yeah. um, channels. I was just curious because the pay-as-you-wish model is, is something that organizations are experimenting with. Enormous uh, respect for Advisory Board for the Arts to look forward to. Oh, yeah. And, what they are are learning and I'm hearing you say with that suggested um, uh, ticket price you're getting something that approximates it you're not getting zero or five dollars and so that that's interesting to me and not surprising actually um, there is something that is surprising to me that I'd love to hear you talk about it's the Roco app um, which is delivered mm -hmm. real time yeah. during concerts are you still doing that and and how what's the reaction to it yes well I mean like 65% of our audience uses it, but um, the, the the app, so we were the first adopters, I think, for professional orchestras of Octava, which was the first iteration of this before LiveNote. And it was when the Octava app was downloaded. And what we did, it was originally designed for program note delivery. And I thought that was boring. Uh -huh. First of all, program notes are usually very boring. All we have are bullet points. They're called Buller points. That's his name, Mark Buller. But um, what we do is Matt, at first I tried something that was way overdone and it was a little bit of an off piece. I asked our musician to go into the score and tell our score reader at, like a comment on one part of the score. So the clarinet would be, when I start to play the solo, it reminds me of birds or, or, or can you believe this person wrote this? So it was this, like all the musicians had a comment that was being written and delivered to your phone in real time on the score when you were hearing it. But to get 40 musicians to respond to you that well, no. So <laughs> we hadn't quite developed that culture, the culture of communication. Well, what I'm looking for, just so you know, is an app developer and I just haven't been able to do it. And I hate putting it out there because I get calls constantly around the nation from people wanting to help. But um, LiveNote was how we moved to because Encore, our new app thing that we use, integrated LiveNote that Philadelphia Orchestra developed um, that was the same idea, right? But then they they stopped doing it because no one was using it, mm. and so so what we've done is just put up a set of Google Slides that that advances within a certain minute or two, but it's not super timed, you know. So his commentary is not timed for the moment in the piece. I wonder if it had something to do the difference, you know, the the environment for the Philadelphia Orchestra um, is likely quite different than the environment at Roco. You know, house lights are up, right. and, and the and the way in which the fluidity um, in the in the environment may enable me to feel more free and less yep. constrained. Okay, so speaking of free, um, you and this is you gave me, you gifted to me um, um, a copy of your. I want to round this out and then show oh, folks this Nightingale. Nightingale, this book, oh. uh, children's book. It's just so stunning. Um, but it's, it's, um, tell it, say a little bit about what inspired this book. It was part of your commission program, I think. Yes. Well, again, so many things, even commissions start from a human space. Like in 2018, Scott was doing it unchambered. Scott St. John is our concert master. He lives in London, Ontario, and he is one of our artistic partners now. 
and he is the biggest Disney freak. Like, like not kidding. I, I can't quite get past it. He, he has, you know, his cufflinks are Disney. They have a timeshare in Disney. He's been to every Disney in the world. We, we couldn't do a piece based on the Disney theme, right? But he right. wanted it to be Disney-esque. So uh -huh. he picked Kevin Lau, who is one of the most vibrant composers I know. And he's Canadian as well. He's a Taiwanese Canadian. And they picked the Nightingale Tale from Hans Christian Andersen because it was in the public domain, right? And it was written for Scott, so violin, Nathan clarinet, and Kevin played the piano with narrator. So Amy Gibbs had a friend, has a friend, Amy Scheidegger-Dukas, who's an illustrator. And we asked her and commissioned her for some sketches and some Beautiful pictures. Beautiful illustrations, my goodness. And they're so good, right? They were just so good. So as soon as it was played, we knew this was kind of golden. And so it just started to occur to me over COVID, especially that this could be a children's book so easily. I think the biggest importance about that, we did not make the book to sell the book. So if you go to Rocco and you go to Nightingale page, the, the digital video, the digital version of the book is free. It's available for free right there. So you can put it on a smart board. You can do it. Also, um, you know, there's the audio for free on there, but we actually got a grant to be able to distribute 2,500 books all over Houston. So we gave a thousand to the Barbara Bush literacy campaign last week for their cruisers and the idea of, you know, really giving away the content and yet needing the money to continue to do it. So we raise money for Rocco on the go to continue to record living composers and other things to then leave it for free. So it's kind of a vicious, um, in, it, what, is, what do they call it? A vicious good cycle, a, a vicious virtuous cycle. Thank you. This yeah. is virtuous cycle, a virtuous cycle. Virtuous that's the right cycle. way to think. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's what Rocco is. Um, Aww, it is that. an example of a virtuous cycle of doing things that enable classical music to be accessed differently and creatively. It puts artists at the center, which is something um, I'm motivated around and inspired by, um, mm -hmm. how we can join up and not be separate from and use the creativity that is so distinct that creatives bring and infuse that into organizations. Rocco exemplifies that because that's the space from which you came, Alicia. I'm as I as I think about now, this is my last question of you, and I'm so okay. grateful for your time. Oh, thank you for this. Oh, this is awesome. So much um, in each quadrant of positive disruption. I understand your point about not disrupting for disruption's sake, but with a set of values and, and intention at, at the heart. So step back and think about the journey and the leadership. Um, it's a leadership question. You know, the leadership that's been provided in, in culture for team and culture for musicians and culture for audiences and testing and learning. What is the most, what's been the most difficult part of leading the way for Rocco and what's been the most positive and wonderful surprise in leading um, the way with Rocco? Well, the surprise is easy. It's like what, what, what comes next? It's like raising a kid. You don't, you, if, as long as you're, you've got the boundaries, but you've got the flexibility and the structure of pouring into them that they become who they are. That's what Roku is as an entity and the people that have all been associated with it, especially with the in up out culture for me, I always wanted to bring women in, bring them up and not kick them out, but hopefully they move on to the things that they can lead. So basically also being that, but I, I love to say Roku is a convener. We're always about convening, just like we started the um, co-commissioning database and ACOs hosting it on their site because it makes sense for them. But just trying to say, where can we have information and how can we distribute it best? I, I think that's been a really interesting thing. 
and also trying to get not just our field but the arts to stop thinking in a dearth model but to think in a, a, a thriving model I don't want to just survive we have to thrive and the idea that build a bigger pie you don't just take the piece and if and, it, and I will say too when I wasn't getting in orchestras before I started Rocco when someone else would get when an audition even a flute player I'd be like well I guess I you know they did it I guess I can't instead of thinking they did it I can't the, the most success has been leaning into people's possibilities and hiring people while we might have an opening, we still kind of craft the job around the person. But the challenge for that has always been who does what. Every day, I had no idea, number one, how much I would write, constantly mm. be writing about whether it's copy or emails or I mean, constant, constant writing. And two, having every day a conversation with whose job is this? Well, maybe not you. Or me trying to, and now Amy and I are doing it for each other. That isn't your job. Yes, you can do it. And all of us could do it, but that's not your job. And not in a way to be bad delegating, but in a way of what's the best use of your time and your job. We mm. spend a lot of time thinking and talking about that. So my hardest thing has always been, and it was just me and I brought on an assistant. And what's challenging personally for me is the pace, figuring out how to communicate best to other people while asking them to, you know, work with me too. And that's, that's been the hardest for me um, as far as a leadership thing, as far as really putting it out there, also just nominating my people for awards and really trying to make sure that you lift them up because that doesn't take away from you. And, and also, you know, just again, saying ACO, you should host this. It's, it's not us. It's, this is the idea now go and finding the best, the best resonating spot for ideas and initiatives. Alicia, it's it's inspiring what you and your organization uh, is doing. Uh, it is in indeed leading the way, a different way around the role that classical music can creatively play in the life of a community. Um, I'm really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for making the time for and with us. Thank you. Thank you for helping us be a bullhorn about Roco. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. That's all for this episode of Leading the Way with Jill S. Robinson, brought to you by TRG Arts. Thanks for listening and believing that insightful, daring, and innovative leadership is the way to a more resilient future for the arts and cultural industry. Make sure to subscribe to Leading the Way on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you found this episode helpful, please rate and review the show. For additional resources and to sign up for the podcast newsletter, we invite you to visit our website at leadingthewaypodcast.com.